This is a fun little psalm. We're going to go, we're going to attempt to go through all 12 verses. But I'm going to start us off with the first two verses. And it reads like this. How lovely is the dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. What a wonderful expression. The excitement that is produced by the presence of God. The excitement that this psalmist is trying to convey to us. It's obvious that the excitement that he is able to pin about is from a direct experience that he has. And, and I'm believing and trusting that each one of us we should, to some degree, have that same response. Now, of course, when the psalmist talked about dwelling place, the dwelling place of God, he meant the temple, the building in Jerusalem where the Shekinah glory was manifested. In the Holy of Holies, no Israelite was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year under most rigorous rituals. And when the Israelites came to the temple, they could not physically enter into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God. Yet the psalmist who's writing the psalm is writing it for the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah, they served in the tabernacle and later in the temple as gatekeepers. They were also ones who ministered to God in song. You get all this information in the First Chronicles as well as Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 20 um, gives an insight that the children or the descendants of Korah were one who stood up in praise and sang loudly to the Lord. Korah, you may remember, was the one who led the rebellion against Moses, and he was judged harshly for that. But yet his descendants were able to have access into the temple and minister to the Lord in song as well as were gatekeepers. It really gives us an insight to the grace of God. That the grace of God was extended to the descendants of Korah who were granted to the privilege to serve in the temple. Yet there were descendants of a man who was opposing the work of God. And so the descendants were very familiar with the ongoings of what took place in the temple. So they would be very familiar of the dwelling place. As they would sing this song, it would be very familiar to them. And they're wanting for the audience to be captured in that as they write, how lovely is the dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. As Christians living in the age of grace, we know that the dwelling place of God, as written in the New Testament, 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. That God dwells within the hearts of men who receive and trust and believe in him. Therefore, as we read this psalm, we can take them as an expression and the excitement that comes because of the presence of God, because God resides in our hearts. So that much more this psalm should apply and be applicable in our lives. Amen? And there's a result, there's effects that the psalmist writes about for those who dwell with the Lord. How lovely is the place, the inner beauty that God creates by his presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O God. The place where God lives should be a lovely place. Interesting prayer by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to turn there for us. Ephesians chapter 3 Um, is a really amazing prayer at the end of chapter 3. And uh, I'm actually going to read verse 14 through 19. And if you're ever without words for prayer for me or for anyone else, I love this prayer. You can pray this prayer for me every day. But Paul prays this. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and the depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a great prayer. And he prays specifically, did you catch that? That Christ may dwell in your heart, that he may make home a residence in your heart. The Bible says that our hearts are wicked. Apart from Christ Jesus, our hearts are wicked. Mark chapter 7 talks about the depravity of our hearts. But with intimacy, allowing the Lord to dwell richly in our hearts, he makes them lovely. That dwelling place becomes a lovely place. That's who changes the heart of man. It's Christ Jesus dwelling. That's why it's so important to guard our time with the king. Because in our time of intimacy is when he makes change. It's when he makes that heart lovely. That's why we have to guard it. That's why we got to seek it. To allow him to make residence in all facets, in all areas of our hearts. To surrender those things to him that he might make them lovely. The second thing that he creates is a compelling hunger. Listen what the psalmist says. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. Have you ever felt that way in your time of devotion with the Lord or in a time of worship 
where you, you just feel this hunger satisfied and yet you walk away with hunger still. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. He's able to feed us. He's able to satisfy us. Yet he's able to leave yet that hunger for more. That's why the psalmist says, my soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. Friends, if, if, if you're not in that place, longing for the presence of God, feeling that hunger for him, the chances are you, you just need to engage again in that dwelling place. Because it's there that he satisfies our soul, and yet he's able to put that hunger. A lot of times people feel that emptiness or that dryness, and and to a large degree it's because you're just not engaging. Just not engaging. It's when we engage that the Lord is able to do this. You can't do this from afar. It comes from times of refreshment in the presence of God. It's a strange paradox, yet it's a wonderful ability that God has to make us hungry, yet satisfied. Also, what the presence of God gives is it says here, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. There's a genuine excitement to be in the presence of God. And that's exactly what the Christian life is meant to be. There's maybe many of you that have been Christians for a long time. Maybe some of you for a short time. In a whole, there's, there's a plague within Christianity of just weary, dryness, a, a lack of excitement. And yet... The joy of the Lord, it, it, it should be paramount within the Christian. An excitement. An excitement of the possibilities of what God is doing in your life. The excitement of being saved seems to lack within the church today. And I'm not talking about an artificial excitement. It's not something you put on. It's not a mask. It's a real thing. The psalmist is setting up before us the reality of the excitement of being in the presence of God. And yet I find so many Christians falling into dullness, boredom, dryness. And yet our relationship with God should remedy those things. As the world looks in, they should see a genuine excitement. A genuine excitement. See, if you went to uh, the Coliseum yesterday, you would see a genuine excitement, right? Especially if you're an SE fan. Just put the whooping on yesterday. See, you go in that arena and you see there's excitement over a football game. And yet in the house of God, where God is doing an inner work, Beyond compare, beyond anything that that Colosseum could produce, what is going on in, in the church today, God is doing amazing things. And yet there's a lack of excitement, a lack of joy. 
See, I found long ago that there lies in boredom or in dryness, in dullness, uh, there, there is a remedy, and it's Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, you read about a woman who is jaded. She comes to the well. She's thirsty. She had gone through an experience of multi-marriages, five trying vainly to find something to satisfy her, this woman finds herself at the well, and Jesus' response to her is, if you knew who it is that is asking you to drink, you would ask of me, and I would put in you, in you, a well of living water springing up unto eternal life. He was offering this woman the joy of her salvation. That is where her satisfaction was. Not in men, not in a relationship, but in him is true satisfaction and joy. There are times where, where we feel despondent or whatever circumstances put you in that place. Friends, be reminded, as I often am reminded, to drink of the well that is within. Jesus. You got to follow that phrase, otherwise it sounds super freaky. The well within is where you'll find satisfaction. No, it's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. All that we need, friends, is all that we really have. You strip everything away we still have our salvation. You can't take that away from me. You can repo my house. You can take away this. But you can't take away what has been given to me in Christ Jesus. That is why I sing for joy. Amen? Amen. Find myself often, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, when you found yourself down and out, when you find yourself in that particular place, that is the prayer. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. And then the next two verses, he describes, he describes the contentment that the presence of God brings. Listen to the wording. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the sparrow a nest for herself. Or excuse me, the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at the altar, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in the house ever singing thy praise. Selah. That word is meant to meditate, stop and ponder and think upon what has just been said. He mentions two birds that are frequently found in the scriptures. First, the sparrow. Do you remember it was Jesus who said to his disciples, referring to the sparrow, 
none of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Matthew 10. And then later he says, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And in another place he says, are not five sparrows sold in the marketplace for a farling? It's the smallest amount of money in that time. By these statements, he's recognizing that the sparrow is a popular symbol for insignificance. Sparrows represent those who feel not worthy. Now the psalmist is saying even the man or woman who feels insignificant finds in God a home, a place of warmth and security and fulfillment. You may be feeling useless, but when you come to God, you will find, you will find a worth. I'm, I'm so blown away. Within scriptures, you read how many times God passes over the proud, he passes over the haughty and the powerful, and he selects the insignificant, the obscure individual, and he uses them for his glory. Gideon was one of those men. Felt very insignificant, not worthy of the call, but yet God used him. Moses, you go throughout the list, and it was men and women who were very insignificant, not feeling worthy. Moses was in the house of Pharaoh, yet he had made this huge uh, mistake in killing an Egyptian, so he ran, and in his obscurity, in all that had taken place, God said, I can use that man. It wasn't when he was in the court of Pharaoh. It was when he was in his obscurity. It wasn't when he was in his high place. It was when he was in his low place. God wasn't done with Moses. Moses thought he was done. Matter of fact, when Moses was approached by God, Moses said, no, you got the wrong guy, God, not me. Not me. See, Moses had reached a place where God could work through him. And God picked him up out of his insignificance and began to use him mightily. Yes, even the sparrow will find a place of usefulness in the house of God. Not just the sparrow, but the swallow. It's interesting, the swallow. The swallow is an interesting bird. Um, 17 years ago, yesterday, I got married to my woman. And praise the Lord. And uh, when we got married, we moved into married student housing uh, at the end of Stork at uh, UCSB. And as you go at the end of Stork, right before it curves, you look to the right, and there's this housing. We were paying $400 for a one-bedroom apartment. Isn't that amazing? God was so good to us. <laughs> 400 bucks, and uh, we were newlyweds. It was really exciting. We had our little porch, and we set up, a, we had a, like a, a little uh, garden that we set out there, and we we're super excited, and, and, and uh, it was right next to the golf course, and so these these. Uh, swallows, man, they were, they were making a nest underneath our eave, and so when we would sit out on the porch, we would see these birds were like these erratic, they were like psycho birds. <laughs> because 
they just fly to and fro. They just seem erratic, and, and they're not like, you know, most birds who are just flying here and there. They're, I mean, they're, you watch them. Watch. Watch that bird. He's a crazy bird. <laughs> they're darting to and fro, and they're used in Scripture in that, that sense. Restless. Forever looking for something. Never settling down. They're like the rolling stone, restless, ever on the move. But yet even the swallow, even the swallow finds a home, a place to build a nest and to raise her young, to find purpose and fulfillment in the house of God. In my many years of observation as a pastor, seeing many restless people, being restless myself, there is only one place that you will find rest, and that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Rest for your souls. Those are not just mere words, brothers and sisters. It's not just beautiful language to tickle our ears. That is truth. It is biblical. These words are meant this morning for many of you who are restless. God is speaking to you. You lack His rest, His peace. And this morning, he wants to grant it to you. You're like that sparrow. He wants you to find rest in his home, to set up, to hunker down, cuddle. You'll find that in that relationship that he desires. You won't find rest in a relationship with the world With some other human, you won't find rest in a drink or a pill or an adventure. You find it, as the psalmist puts it, at the altar, O Lord of hosts. My king and my God is what he writes. I love that. At your altar, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. I love the phraseology. He puts together two concepts of God which seem to be contradictory to each other. He first refers to God as the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Well, that means the Lord of the multitudes, the Lord of many, the Lord of great crowds, the Lord of whom all creatures on earth depend on, the mighty in power who is able to meet the needs of thousands upon thousands everywhere. And then he adds, my king, my God. It's possessive. It's personal. It's set in direct contrast to the Lord of hosts. The one of glory, the one who is wonderful, who is able to meet the needs of all mankind and yet able to meet the needs of you and I individually. He's able to give himself wholly to me and wholly to you, individually, yet still meeting the needs of all. 
He's the Lord of hosts, and he's my God, and he's my king. Is he your God? Is he your king? See, many Christians see the concept of him being the God of many, but they don't get to that place of, but he's my God too, and he's my king, possessive. It's got to be possessive as well as understanding that he can meet the needs of the many. And friends, I really believe many Christians live their life that way. He's able to meet the needs of many, but not mine, not mine. Let him be yours because he is. Depending on where you find yourself as a recipient. My God, my King. No wonder the psalmist says, blessed are those who dwell in thy house. Ever singing praises. What a tremendous thing. Possess it. There's enough to go around, amen? Amen. There's enough to go around. And then the next section, he sets up before us a description of what happens when God is at work in our hearts. Verses 5 through 8. What happens when God is at work in our hearts? Blessed are the men whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highway to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go through. From strength to strength, the God of gods will be seen in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer and give ear, O God, of Jacob. And then he asks us to pause again. Blessed are the men whose strength is in you. Let me ask you this. In your times of difficulty, in your times of trouble, in your times of pressure, whose strength do you rely on? Because when you rely on his strength, it makes a gigantic difference. And I've been to this place many times, whether it be because you're tired or cranky or you're just in some certain circumstance where you seem to be leaning on your own strength. And you know when you are. You know when you're leaning on your own understandings, and you know when you're leaning on His. This morning, God is just wanting to gently remind us all that we are blessed. Oh, how happy is the man whose strength is found in Him. In Him. And again, it it takes place when we're willing to pause, stop, and pray. Cry out. Especially especially when you're tired and cranky. I say this out of um, a reality. Whether it be as a father or as a husband or as a pastor, I find that there's times where I'm short and, I, and it's obvious that I'm leaning on my own strength. My wife, if you guys know my wife, she is a wonderful woman. 
she's always quick to, hey, let's pray. And as a, I mean, that's the greatest attribute about her. She's always, and you'll be in the weirdest situation, like you're just about to leave or go somewhere and you're in a hurry and she's like, well, let's pray. And you're like, okay, yeah, let's pray. But it's in those cases that I know I need the prayer. It's in those times of frustration where it's like you, I'm looking at her and I was like, okay, but can it, can it be a quick one? I got to go. I found that the prayer really connects me to the God who is wanting to lead me. And it's such a great lesson for us all because we, it's so easy to, to get in that place where circumstances are causing you to fall back on what you know, your own strength, your own gig. But blessed is the man whose strength is in him, in him. When you find yourself in that place, you've got to stop, pause, and pray. Pause and pray. Then he adds, in whom the heart are the highways. Speaking of the man who trusts and whose strength is in the Lord. Whose heart are the highways. What kind of men are these with the highway in their hearts? As the scriptures reference to the highway, they reference the highways often. And uh, that's an access to God. You remember John the Baptist preaching before Christ. He was preaching the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40. He was a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then he goes on to describe what would be done for those who will do this. Isaiah 44 says, every valley shall be lifted up Every mountain and hill shall be made low. Uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain. That is what's described here in Psalm 84. Men and women who know how to build in their hearts a highway to God. Their strength will be in Him. And there will be no variation There will be a strengthening that God will do for men and women who make a highway that he will allow you in your times of the valley or on the mountaintops, whether you'll be going through the valley of Baca, which is the valley of weeping. Ultimately, for those who make a highway in your hearts, he will make a place of springs. And the early rain also covers it with pools. And the imagery here, the imagery that's given in this psalm is that those who trust and whose strength is in the Lord, who are willing to allow their hearts to dwell with the Lord in such a way where there is a building of a highway. What does that look like? What does that highway look like? Well, think about it. Think about what it takes to build a highway. You don't just slap one down, right? Uh, Caltrans would be out of business. Them, they know how to make a highway. They take forever to make a highway, right? 
That's what it takes, friends. It takes time with God to build a highway, a conduit where the Lord is constantly filling your cup. The imagery that comes to my mind is just allowing the Lord through. It's all off of the premises of verse 1 and 2, dwelling in the house of the Lord. Allowing him to lay down each brick by brick a highway which he has complete and utter access to my heart. And that comes in a daily presence with him. Daily seeking him. Daily in his word. Daily in prayer. Daily in that place of just allowing him to dwell richly. He's laying bricks. And in doing so, when tough and difficult times, as it says here, the valley of Baca is the valley of weeping, there's going to be times, brothers and sisters, where we hit despair and discouragement. But God, when there is a highway built in your heart, God will make those places a spring. The, the early rains that is referenced here, many commentators will say the early and the latter rains when speaking in the Old Testament speak of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. When you add the highway and the heart and the presence and the dwelling place and the Spirit of God, that's a wonderful combination, brothers and sisters. And this morning, God is wanting to minister to us and that fast, and I really believe that there's some here who are, are like the sparrow and just restless as can be, or some of you are in despair, and God is wanting to build in your heart a highway that he can have access to minister to you. And it's going to take you setting aside the time to get on your face or to get on your knees and ask the Lord, because you'll find that the, that the psalmist eventually begins to pray, God, make me a man like this. Listen, verse 8, he says, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Pause. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Behold our shield. Look upon the face of your anointed. He's, it's, it's almost like he's saying, God, make me this man whose strength is in you, who has a highway in my heart. It's a cry for personal application and is perfectly proper for us as believers to join him in praying that our lives will be such. Because the result, as the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Better is one day in your courts, O oh God. This man has eventually discovered how rich and how wonderful and exciting it is in the presence of God. 
And he kind of, at the end, is praying that this, this would be true in my life. And I believe that this morning God has given us the opportunity to do the very same thing. To take this time. We've lengthened our time of worship in the end specifically to allow each one of us to dwell richly. To be ministered, to minister to. Maybe you're restless. Maybe you're one who is lacking the joy of the Lord. There's that dryness. Maybe you feel empty and God wants to pour. He wants you to be like the woman at the well. He's wanting to satisfy your soul. Maybe your prayer is, God, give me that highway. Lord, show me what that means. Maybe you're lacking the strength. But friends, as we, end this, as we end the text, as we look at verse 11, listen to what it says. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. That, that's a powerful verse to unpack. No good thing does the Lord withhold for those who walk uprightly. This is what Charles Spurgeon says in regards to this verse. It does not say, I will force all my children to enjoy every good thing. No, but no good thing will he withhold. There are thousands of mercies that we do not enjoy, not because they are withheld, but because we do not take them. We are not confined in God, but in ourselves. We are empty because we do not accept the fullness of Christ. God is wanting to express his fullness this morning. And in this new season set before us, we need to get on our face and dwell richly and allow the Lord to minister to the depths of our souls. That he would lead us, direct us, guide us. Amen? Amen. And that's what we have this morning. God wanting to extend his mercies. If you're running low, it's perfect. Today is your day. Whether it be prayer, coming, taking communion, remembering what Christ Jesus has done, however you see fit to adjust and make a move towards your God, your King. You make that move this morning. Because again, I really believe in this new season, God is wanting to do great and greater things. And if you're like me, I'm like, God, I don't want to miss out on anything. Whenever there's freebies involved, I'm like, hey, Lord, I'm, I'm in. I love freebies. God is wanting to extend freebies. And he doesn't want to withhold He's a giving, gracious God. He wants to minister to us. So let's go deep into the throne room and let us end with the last verse. Um, right there. O Lord of hosts, 
How blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's trust in him right now. Let's trust in him. Let's step out in faith and trust in him. Amen? Jesus, we thank you for this morning and we're blessed by your presence. So rich and so wonderful are your ways towards us. Father, there are many here this morning who are dry and weak and weary, like the sparrow going to and fro. We just want to rest in your arms now and seek your face as you would minister to your people. Come and have your way with us, we pray. In your precious name, amen.